Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, author Kevin McCarthy focuses much of his work on African-American history in Florida. What is the African-American history like in this state? Are there lynchings in our past? Are there great writers? Are there great dramatists? Are there great scientists? We'll discuss telephone books and city directories. Oftentimes, census records can tell us only so much, but the city directories can help us fill in the gaps. And we'll talk about Happy Little Trees artist Bob Ross. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Lift every voice and sing. Kevin McCarthy taught at the University of Florida from 1969 to 2005. He has written or edited 35 books, 30 of them about Florida. His books include The Book Lover's Guide to Florida, Florida Lighthouses, 30 Florida Shipwrecks, and 20 Florida Pirates. Several of his books focus on African-American history and culture in Florida. When I came down to the University of Florida in 1969, I needed a subject to write about. And believe it or not, at that time, I was used to be introduced by my chairman as the world authority. Are you sitting down? The world authority on Arabic, Persian, German, and English words in modern Turkish. Nobody cared then. Nobody cared now about that subject. So little by little, I thought I should find a subject I'm interested in. I bought a pup tent in 1976, camped my way around the state of Florida, just to learn as much as I could about this remarkable state that I was going to call my home the rest of my life. And I would go into towns and find out from the local people, suppose I want to read about the history of this town or county, what would you suggest? Were there any famous novels that were set here? Any famous filmmakers, any famous novelists or other writers who lived here? any famous African-Americans who lived here. And little by little, I accumulated lots of information about the state of Florida and used to go around to any group that would listen to me for free to talk about what I thought was a neglected part of Florida, not only the culture, but also the history of African-Americans. It always amazed me, and I'm a Yankee, so I can say this, a Yankee from New Jersey. I always thought that others, including other Yankees, disparaged Florida in terms of history, culture, movie making, and so on. It's true that we have great beaches, 
we have spring training, we have Disney and, and Epcot and so on in Central Florida. We have the rockets, lo rocket launchings in Cape Canaveral. But I, I got annoyed more and more as I realized how much people out of Florida did not realize about the culture and also about the African-American history. So I began to go to African-American churches, went to hundreds of cemeteries, sites around, went to the archives in Tallahassee, just for my own information about what is the African-American history like in this state? Are there lynchings in our past? Are there great writers? Are there great uh, dramatists? Are there great scientists? And I was pleasantly surprised to find that we have a lot of personages in our history of African-American descent that really ought to be better known. McCarthy's book, African Americans in Florida, co-authored with Maxine Jones, focuses on dozens of interesting people, including educator Mary McLeod Bethune, composer James Weldon Johnson, and civil rights activist Harry T. Moore. I think in the top five would be Zora Neale Hurston, because not only was she a great folklorist, and that's the thing that people don't remember. For example, she used to go out to turpentine camps and to logger camps, interview people. And she worked for a man named Stetson Kennedy for the Library of Congress, and she began to accumulate lots of information about the folk life among African Americans. And she wrote some really significant novels. I think Their Eyes Were Watching God has perhaps the best description of what it's like to live through a hurricane down in the Everglades. And little by little, I began to know more about her. I went down to Fort Pierce, where she eventually died. And I learned, for example, that when she died, she was living, renting a house in Fort Pierce. And after she died, her landlord went in and found lots and lots and lots of papers that she had been working on, uh, novels and so on. And one uh, her landlord began to burn the papers because he thought this is just a bunch of junk. And by chance, a deputy fire chief from Fort Pierce was driving by her house, realized that she was a famous novelist who had lived there, saw the fire burning outside in the front yard, and had enough sense to extinguish the flames on these papers. Now, eventually, the charred remains of her works made it to the University of Florida archives, and that's where people can come up to look at these, the charred remains. For example, of one of her books about the Holy Land. We don't realize that she wrote about Herod the Great, for example. African-American history in Florida goes all the way back to the first Spanish contact. People of African descent were on board all of the Spanish ships that came here, making black people among the first non-indigenous people to set foot in Florida. Kevin McCarthy. One of the first expeditions that came to Florida had an African-American named Estevanico, who made it as far as New Mexico. So there were like five, four or five survivors of this Spanish expedition, and he was one of the ones that made it there. So he was not only a strong person to survive the terrible ordeals they had, but he made a significant contribution to helping the Spanish discover what it was like in the Southeast. Educators have found it useful that the book African Americans in Florida has a companion teacher's manual. I met with some school officials from Palm Beach County and I said, how can I make this book 
as not only applicable to middle school, high school students, but also how can teachers use it? I know my, my daughter is a fourth grade teacher in Orlando and she doesn't have a whole lot of time to prepare brand new material every single day. How can we, or how can I as a writer, help teachers understand more about African Americans and use the resources that are available to them? So I put together a, a teacher's manual for that. Another one of Kevin McCarthy's most popular books is African American Sites in Florida. Fort Mose is known as the first legally sanctioned black community in what is now the United States, and Eatonville is the oldest incorporated African-American municipality entirely governed by African-Americans. Kevin McCarthy points out that there are many other important historical sites. Fort Jefferson, down in the Florida Keys. Fort Jefferson, the largest masonry brick structure ever built in this country, was built by slave labor. This was done by a group of slaves from Key West who were taken out there by boat and built this monstrous, monstrous place out there. Baseball. I wrote a book about baseball in Florida and discovered that, as many people know, Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Daytona Beach. So that if you visit the Jackie Robinson ballpark in Daytona Beach today, you will see outside the stadium where the Cubs have practiced for a long time, and now it's the, the Rays, I guess, there is a statue that, that is of Jackie Robinson, and this of a, of a man, an African-American ball player, Jackie Robinson, who is holding the hands of two youngsters, one black, one white, clearly speaking to them, and behind Jackie Robinson's statue, there is a wavy, wall made of stone. And when the architect was asked, why a wavy wall? He said, it's like when you drop a pebble into a pond and the cascading motion of the little tiny rivulets go out. You never know where the long-term effects of something like an integration of a ball team will, will take place. He had terrible, Jackie Robinson had a terrible time in Stanford and in Jacksonville when the sheriff wanted to arrest him for playing with, with white ball players. So the base, baseball players have a, a, a lot to say about integration, and Daytona Beach is one place like that. In his book, Black Florida, Kevin McCarthy continues his study of African-American history and culture, looking at the Rosewood Massacre, civil rights demonstrations in Tampa and Tallahassee, and much more. Almost every major city in Florida has some significance. Pensacola, for example, there was, that was the site where the first black four-star pilot grew up. Chappie James is his name. And he grew up in a power, you can still visit his house and you can still see the steps of the house in Pensacola where he would sit for many hours listening to his grandparents talk about what it was like to grow up an African-American in Pensacola. Tallahassee has some wonderful places. Uh, the, not only was that was the place where the Emancipation Proclamation was read out for the first time to the assembled people after Abraham Lincoln passed that. But St. Augustine has places. I mean, almost every place in Florida has a significance in African-American history. 
Kevin McCarthy is a white researcher documenting African-American history and culture. McCarthy says that while his motives have sometimes been questioned, his work is generally well-received in the African-American community. I've spoken in black churches, and one of the best compliments I ever had was in Palatka when I spoke before a black audience about the heritage of, of African-Americans in Florida. And afterwards, this young man came up. He said, I'm from Miami. I could almost see the smoke coming out of his ears. He was so angry. He said, I expected to, to really denounce you as a, a person who didn't have any qualifications. He said, but as a white guy, you did okay. And I thought that's one of the highest praises I ever had from anybody about my writing. Kevin McCarthy is author or editor of 30 books about Florida. Among his most popular are African Americans in Florida, African American sites in Florida, and Black Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, very few people use printed phone books anymore, and city directories are quickly becoming a thing of the past, but they can be useful research tools, right? Oh, absolutely, and increasingly so. Uh, as genealogy becomes a, a favorite hobby of a lot of people, they're tracing their family history, uh, these city directories and telephone directories, uh, at the time, of course, we might have thought that they were something disposable and ephemeral, but because these materials have survived, we're able to uh, trace individuals who may not have been on kind of the national scene, may not have been in the newspapers. Uh, oftentimes, census records can tell us only so much, but the city directories can help us fill in the gaps. Uh, these directories were often published on off years as well, so in between when some of the census records were, were uh, uh, or the enumerations were done. So they're becoming increasingly important to help us uh, really track down uh, where someone lived, what they did for a living, if they moved. Uh, oftentimes it shows the spouse. So all that information is captured in these early city directories. Well, you have here some interesting and some very old city directories and phone books. What kind of information can be found in them? 
Yeah, that's right. I, I grabbed a sample of the collection of, of nearly 100 city directories from all over Florida that we have in the collection here at, uh, at FHS. Uh, first, I want to show you the earliest in the collection. And this actually dates from 1886. This is the Webb's Jacksonville directory. Now, it covers the entire city of Jacksonville, all of Duval County, but it also includes Orlando, Tampa, Sanford, Palatka, uh, and many other communities in between, small communities, unincorporated establishments. Pretty much everybody living in the state is captured in this one one single book. Uh, and 1886 is, is an important year, mid-1880s, when Florida was experiencing a tremendous boom. A lot of people were coming from other states. They were migrating into Florida. Uh, so again, it, it can be difficult to track where these people were, what they were doing. Uh, but with a city director like this, we can actually follow these people uh, through Florida uh, over the years. Uh, so what we're looking at here is, is the 1886. I've, I've opened up uh, to one page. We're in the H's. So city directories are organized uh, alphabetically first by individuals, but they also include uh, street directories. So uh, say you have uh, a building that you're trying to trace the history of a building, who lived there. We can actually search by street, but if you're only searching for an individual, we can go alphabetically. I've opened it up to the H's, so we're looking at a, a gentleman by the name of James D. Hollister. Uh, so it lists his name, uh, surname first, uh, Hollister James D., but it also lists Superintendent of Florida Southern Railroad. It also tells us where he lived. He was at Main Street on the corner of Front and First Street. So we know exactly where this individual lived, and now we know what they did for a living. This is incredible information. Oftentimes that can be difficult uh, when the uh, document records are, are scarce for some of these individuals. What's also great about these early directories uh, are the advertisements. Now this is how uh, companies like Webb and, and Polk, this is how they made money. They sold advertisements. So uh, just about every other page, there's a great advertisement for a contemporary uh, business. Here on the same page, we have a giant full-page ad for the Fast Line, St. John's River Steamers. They're advertising new, large, fast, and elegant Mississippi passenger steamers uh, that would travel along the St. John's River between Sanford, Palatka, and Jacksonville. So it lists who the uh, principal owners are. Uh, all of these names are vitally important for genealogists, but also for historians. Now, looking at this 1886 uh, book a little bit longer, if we, we flip over to some of the Jacksonville company directories, we see the Palmetto Fiber manufacturers. Now, this may seem innocuous, but this is important because only a few, uh, less than two decades later, Jacksonville experienced a devastating fire that leveled most of the city in 1901. And that fire actually started right here in this Palmetto Fiber Factory. So mm. know exactly where it was when that happened. Wow. Now, is the kind of information found in these city directories available today uh, online? Well, some of it is. Uh, a place like Jacksonville, these larger metropolitan areas, you can find some of this information. Libraries have begun digitizing. But some of the smaller areas, I've got another example. This is a 1926 Polk directory for Brevard County, where FHS is actually headquartered. And a lot of the smaller communities that were unincorporated and, and disappeared within the next few decades after the 1920s, they don't exist anymore. And that kind of information is only available in these books. We also have some early telephone directories from Panama. City. Uh, again, getting back to the advertisements, this may be the only advertisement that was run for a small period of time, and that information isn't available anywhere else. So they are still vitally important, uh, not necessarily for their original purpose or what they're originally intended for, which is looking someone up, but they're important now for, for historical reasons and for uh, genealogical reasons. So, so we absolutely want to maintain and collect what was originally an ephemeral item because they are increasingly important uh, as we move into the future. 
Great. And it looks like you have a, a really good collection here. We do. Like I said, we have uh, over 100 items. I just grabbed a few here, the 1886 being the earliest. Uh, we have a Panama City directory from the 1940s, a Polk directory for Brevard County covering uh, 1926 to 27, Orlando in 1938. So it isn't a complete collection, but uh, we've got a great snapshot of the movement and migration of people throughout different areas of Florida. And you can actually see the state of Florida growing because uh, starting in 1886, this Jacksonville directory covered the entire state. Uh, but within a few decades, each community started producing their own directory because they had a population to sustain uh, their own directory. So, so again, you can see that evolution of uh, the state's population as we get into the 20th century. Interesting. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Artist Bob Ross is probably best known for painting amazing landscapes that often included what he called happy little trees on his PBS television series. Holly Baker, a graduate student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has more. We want to teach you freedom with this technique and turn you loose on the world. Just absolutely turn you loose on the world. Because once you know the technique, You can do anything. And this painting can really and truly become a world on its own. You can can find anything that you want in here. You can find peace. You can find calm times. Anything that's right here. Shoot, let me get off my soapbox here and find a brush. Let's get crazy. Let's Let's make a big evergreen right there. Many people recognize the soothing voice and the beautiful landscape paintings of Bob Ross due to his PBS television show, The Joy of Painting, that aired between 1983 and 1994. But few may realize that he was a native Floridian. Bob Ross was born in Daytona Beach, Florida in 1942, and he lived in Orlando and New Smyrna Beach before passing away in 1994. I recently sat down with Doug Hallgren, certified Ross instructor at the Bob Ross Art Workshop and Gallery in New Smyrna Beach. He told me more about Bob Ross and his art. Well, he's known for his landscapes, uh, of course, and uh, many of them are mountainous scenes. He was in uh, the military for 12 years up in Alaska in the Air Force, and so I think that inspired a lot of his, um, his paintings. He does do seascapes, but definitely known for the landscapes, for sure. Bob Ross discovered oil painting while he was in the U.S. Air Force in the early 1960s. He studied the wet-on-wet technique, which enabled him to create complete paintings in less than an hour. Doug Hallgren describes Bob Ross's painting technique. Well, it's considered wet-on-wet painting, which means uh, if you were to give it a more traditional term, it would be a la prima, meaning all at once. So you're, you're painting the painting uh, and not waiting for layers to dry in between. So you can complete the painting in one session, which is the way he intends for it to be done. It is not so much realism, it's a little more impressionistic, but that's not even the correct term either. It was Bob's own artistic interpretation of how he saw nature. Bob Ross eventually became an art instructor, teaching a television audience of millions on the PBS show The Joy of Painting. 
Doug Hallgren tells us more about Bob Ross's popular television show. Bob was very ingenious in the way that they put the show together, and I think most people know him from the TV show. It's very entertaining. It's 30 minutes long. You're seeing a painting from start to finish. Very simple set. There's no muss, no fuss, all shot in real time. So you're seeing this man make this beautiful painting from zero to complete in just that 30 minutes, and I think it just draws people in. Uh, They don't lose interest because it's done so quickly. And he just had a real warm, charming manner about him. That was the package. That was Bob. Today, people all over the world are still learning the wet-on-wet technique through Bob Ross's videos and through certified Ross instructors like Doug Hallgren. Doug Hallgren tells us about the Bob Ross Art Workshop and Gallery in New Smyrna Beach. Well, the workshop's been here since about 92. Bob Ross and Annette Kowalski decided they would like to have a workshop where they could maybe, not necessarily a home base for the company, but a place where people could come, do classes, and learn about the technique. Uh, By the time they opened this shop, Bob was full into developing his paintings every quarter for the TV show. He would have to do 13 new paintings every quarter. He would come into the shop and do demonstrations from time to time to drum up interest for the classes that were held here, um, but was not so much into teaching anymore as he was into getting the show together. Even though he made over 400 episodes of The Joy of Painting, Bob Ross never profited from his show, and he donated almost all of his paintings to charities. His goal was not to financially profit from his art or to become a museum artist. Bob Ross just wanted to share the joy of painting with others. Doug Hallgren has more. We are the only museum. Bob's works are not on display anywhere else except for here. We're very fortunate to have his paintings. Um, Of course, the the paintings that he did from the TV show are in storage up at the home office in Virginia. Those don't come out on display, not often at all, that I can think of. But I think importantly, I don't think Bob really intended on ever being a museum artist or a gallery artist. He was more about Um, do-it-yourself participation, getting into it, wanting to paint on your own, creating your own masterpieces. Um, His work was secondary to that. It was getting the people drawn in to actually do his technique. The joy of painting ended in 1994 after he was diagnosed with lymphoma. That same year, he passed away in New Smyrna Beach. His final resting place in Gotha, Florida, has a marker that reads, Bob Ross, television artist. His legacy lives on through his videos and through certified Ross instructors who keep his art alive by teaching the Bob Ross painting technique to others. Doug Hogren explains why Bob Ross remains so popular today. I think now with the renewed interest, he's now on YouTube and Netflix and Twitch.com, uh, which has been huge. And so a whole new generation of viewers are starting to watch Bob and be interested for the first time. Um, And that's a lot of exposure throughout just any given day. I mean, just with the PBS stations alone that show him, I think it's well over a thousand times a day. So that's that's a lot of exposure. There's always new people watching him. And because of the simplicity of the show and the effectiveness of the way he did things, I think it just could go on for quite a while and has. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and visit our website at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase, Robert Casanello, and Holly Baker. 
The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.